You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. My guest on this episode of The Spear is Captain Steve Beckman. Uh, Steve, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, so, first of all, a little bit of background about you. Uh, you're obviously a captain in the Army. Um, how, what was your sort of path to the Army? So, uh, Dad and Granddad were both career Army officers. Uh, it's a family of, business. Fa- yeah, family business. Both did ROTC um, in high school. Very interested in going to West Point. Um, my parents encouraged it primarily from a path to pay for free college. Um, got here 2005, graduated in 2009. My dad was still in the Army then. And uh, yeah, it was just a really good support network for my family to support it and something I always wanted to do. Uh, why West Point over ROTC? Um, honestly, I just, something, it was something about West Point. I, I never came and visited while in high school, but it was just something that I, I'd had mentors, I had peers that had gone, kids from my high school that I really respected. And so that was kind of the the goal from ninth grade on was I wanted to go to West Point. Okay. And so what did you branch? I branched armor. So you knew you wanted to go to West Point from ninth grade on. Did you know you wanted to be a tanker? I did not. And when did that come about? That really came about my senior, my first year at West Point. I had come back from Fort Bragg. I wanted, I, my whole plan was I want to be an infantryman. Um, started talking A to my dad and he was completely against it. He's an MI officer by trade, but it always worked with armor officers. And then some of my instructors here, there were even infantry officers like, hey, sir, I'm thinking about doing this, being an infantry officer. And they're like, okay, well, have you thought about armor? At one side, it, it looks like, okay, maybe they're telling me I'm not, that's not the right path for me. But the more I talked with armor officers and had a couple of mentors, a couple of instructors who were armor officers, it, it, it seemed to fit with what I wanted to do in my personality in the army more. Okay. So you commissioned in 2009, you said, as a as an armor officer, and then you go to your basic course. So I went um, July 6th, I arrived at Fort, Fort Sill, Oklahoma to do Bullock 2, which is now yeah. now deceased. Yeah. Did that for six weeks. I, honestly, I had a very good, we had a bunch of really good platoon mentors, despite the course already knowing that it was going to shut down. Um, a lot of just a lot of non-commissioned officers that really still cared about the training they were giving us. So that was an exceptional experience for me. Was it unique too? Because it's um, you know the idea behind Bullock Two is you've got these people from different commissioning sources that have very different experiences and different strengths, different weaknesses, and here's where we can get them all kind of on the same page. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I was an officer candidate school commissioning, um, so I had some you know exposure to 
guys right out of college and basic training and then prior service guys uh no exposure to rotc or west point cadets at that point or lieutenants at that point was it um was it a, a kind of a big adjustment from being here and being being at west point mm-hmm. to going to that environment of bullock too with a, more, a wider variety of commissioning sources so I'd done both air assault and airborne here, and so those had been at least you'd gotten you'd gotten the experience of being away from the flagpole and being mixed up with either ROTC cadets, OCS cadets, or just reg- uh, enlisted soldiers in the army. So I'd, I'd gotten a little bit of a taste of that. Sure. So it was we were in the barracks. It was, it was it was kind of fun to get to a have a bunch of my classmates there at Bullock too, but get to talk and trade stories. My my three roommates were an OCS grad who was 42, already been married, had a life, um, then two cadets, one that had been at a regular ROTC program, and then one who'd gone to VMI. So kind of the flavor wow, of the Army yeah. all in one room. Okay. So six weeks at SIL, six, uh, six wonderful weeks at SIL during July and August. Yeah, my, my granddad still lives there, so that was kind of a nice, oh, cool. that's where he retired out of. But then, uh, yeah, six weeks at SIL, and then on to uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky for Armor OBC. Okay. And then uh, when did you finish OBC? So I finished OBC in the middle of January. Okay. So, um, what is that? Seven, eight months after, after you leave here, you're a branch qualified armor Lieutenant. And where were you sent to? So I was sent to Fort Lewis and in route to Fort Lewis, I knew I was going to fifth brigade, um, second infantry division that was currently deployed in Afghanistan. I, my understanding was I was going to the cavalry squadron and I'd already reached out to the squadron commander. My dad was also currently deployed in RC South as the J2. So there was a little more intel he was able to at least let me know about what was going on. And once I arrived at Fort Lewis in the middle of February, I was immediately told I'm not going to the cavalry squadron. I'm, in fact, going to Charlie 117 Infantry to be a mobile gun system platoon leader. Okay. And How big a change is that? So in terms of platforms, I had never, we did not get to see the mobile gun system at all while at OBC. We'd gotten a decent amount of reps with infantry variant strikers and the reconnaissance variant strikers so i felt i felt comfortable maneuvering my way around a striker based off what armor obc had set us up for i did not know what to expect with what the mobile gun system was to offer i i knew what the technical specifications of it were but nothing beyond that okay and what is it can you describe it so a mobile gun system is a striker with a um, self-propelled turret 105 um, millimeter gun on top. The 105 barrels are actually old cast-offs from M60s. Oh, wow. So we've reused we've reused the barrels. We've reused a lot of the ammunition from the 105 from the old M60s, and it's used as a anti it's an anti tank, anti armor weapon that we were put into platoons of three mobile gun systems in each at that time each infantry company. Okay. So, and you were given one of those platoons? Correct. Um, and this is within 5th Brigade? This was in 5th Brigade. Uh, so so you didn't join them right away in Afghanistan, or you did? I did. So you, did you get that platoon already deployed? Yes. Okay, so you fell in on so I, three mobile gun systems and a bunch of soldiers and said, go do great things for the Army. So the, so the interesting thing is, so by task organization, it's three MGSs per platoon. Um, the problem at that point was in terms of our acquisitions program, there were, not, there were not enough mobile gun systems in the Army to outfit each platoon with three. Okay. So each platoon only had one, and then we were backfilled with a ATGM, which is an anti-tank guided missile striker, so basically the 
the tow missile system that you see on a Bradley, mm-hmm. we called it an ITAS, was what one, we had that on one striker, and then I had two infantry variant strikers, and I had my 19 kilo tank crewmen were divvied up between those four vehicles. So just what you expected when you decided to branch <laughs> armor, huh? Yeah, so I, I knew I wanted to go, I wanted to go to a striker brigade. I, I knew just that that was the platform that you were, you were going to deploy on the vehicle that you were going to train on in contrast to my, my peers who went to an HBCT where they would go, they were going to train on Bradley's and tanks and garrison. But then those were going to go stay in the motor pool for the most part when they transitioned to training on MRAPs and MAPVs for the deployment. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is that, um, you know, I know a lot of armor officers who either left their tanks at home or, you know, deployed with them or fell in on them and parked them and, and you know, mm-hmm. walked around on foot. So at least you avoided that fate, I guess. And you're getting vehicles that are actually going to be used. Mm-hmm. When you look back on it, it was it was, you know, this first deployment right out of OBC, really, on vehicles other than you know, they're not tanks and you're a tank officer, an armor officer. Um, looking back on it, was, was it interesting? Was it exciting? Are you, was it rewarding? So, so the, I, I learned, I grew up a lot on that deployment. Um, kind of the, the last piece before I, I got there that was of interest was, so there are obviously a series of articles that were coming out in the Army Times about what was going on with 5th Brigade in Afghanistan, even prior to kind of the more, the, the, the articles that have, that focused on 2-1 infantry and the kill team. And one of the articles I remember reading when I was a, at OBC was about Charlie 117 infantry and reading about these series of issues that the company was having, the casualties they'd taken, the relief, the removal of the company commander or the replacement of the company commander. And I remember sitting at OBC reading that article and slightly ashamed to say it now, looking at one of my peers and saying, I'm really glad I'm going to the cavalry squadron and mm-hmm. not going to that unit because it sounds like they're having a really rough go. And fast forward three months to Afghanistan, and that is the unit, that is the company. Those are the personalities that I am going to join in combat. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, what was the, um, for, you know, for listeners, I think some people will be familiar with the 5th Brigade and, and, and what was kind of going on. But this is, um, what, what summer, maybe for spring of 2010? Spring of 2010. Okay, can you kind of, can you talk a little bit about that? So the, so the, the previous summer and fall, 5th Brigade, Brigade deployed to Afghanistan in the summer of 2009 and immediately went into intense combat, especially in the Argentab River Valley, and took a series of casualties, um, especially in 117 Infantry. And in the aftermath of that, there were a series of articles that came out, both in the Army Times and elsewhere, that were just asking kind of what was going on. Why were the striker, why were striker brigades not having the repeated success in Afghanistan that they were having in Iraq? Mm-hmm. Um, those articles focused primarily on the battalion and the company I was going to, and several of the Several of the reporters reached out and were able to talk to several of the staff sergeants, some of the very um, influential staff sergeants in the company, and get kind of their their perspective on what was going on, especially the frustration with the perception that we were not fighting, or they were not fighting a coin fight in Afghanistan. They were doing something different. Sure. And so that, that was related to 117 Infantry. The 
kill team that becomes that has become infamous was a infantry squad in two one infantry that was in another part of RC South that mm-hmm. was involved in a series of killings of non-combatant Afghans that has now morphed into not only a documentary but also a movie yep. that has recently come out. And okay. and kind of between between those two incidents, those for the next three or four years, especially at Fort Lewis, five two was we got a we got a bad reputation yeah. based off kind of the litany of issues and kind of the perspective that there was a belief that our leadership was not prepared for operations in Afghanistan. Sure. Okay, so your unit deployed in the summer fall of 2009. You get there, so they've already been there about six months. They've been there, so they got there June, July. So I, yeah, seven, seven, eight months. Okay, so. when you get there, um, so they're pretty seasoned. Mm-hmm. Um, were you replacing another lieutenant? So I was my my replacement had become the executive officer in the company, and then so I, I actually fell in on the platoon sergeant for for that platoon because he had been the acting platoon leader. He'd been the platoon leader for about two months at oh, that wow. point. So I fell in on, uh, yeah, on okay. a non-commissioned officer. Was it difficult? Is that a challenge um, as a, you know, still pretty brand new lieutenant with not only, I mean, it's always a challenge because you're the lieutenant. You're, you know, oftentimes younger than a lot of the guys in the platoon and newer to the army than a lot of the guys um, in the platoon. And you've got to manage that relationship, obviously. You know, it's well-documented and talked about. Um, but now when you have on top of that, that they've all been deployed, going through, you know, some shared experiences and mm-hmm. during difficult times for six, seven, eight months, and now you're there, was it, was it a challenge? It, it, it definitely was. It was, I, f- I felt that I, the way to, for lack of a better word, get buy-in or to become part of the platoon was that I would, I would lead on everything and from being the first vehicle to being the person to go clear culverts, not what the platoon leader is supposed to be doing, but I felt like that was something that I should be doing, especially with the background of the number of, of losses the, the company had taken and just trying to show that, hey, I'm, I'm trying to be part of this team and sure. be, pull my weight on this. Sure. Um, and was it effective? I think so. Yeah. I, th- I think... It was it was interesting the dynamics in the platoon. So it was a we had one sergeant first class, and then we had five uh, sergeant fives in the platoon. And so the the delineation of of leadership roles was was hard just because there was a lot of pure leadership going on sure. in the platoon. Um, that I tried to work on giving giving some ownership to who were the section sergeants versus who were the gunners on the vehicles. And I feel like that helped at least to try and sure. reinforce that, hey, I get it, you're all you're all sergeants, but this sergeant is the section sergeant, this sergeant is the gunner, you do answer to him. Like, let's let's try to rebuild some sort of hierarchy in the platoon, because I felt like there was, there was a sense that they were all, there was one person at the top, and then there were a whole bunch of people beneath that didn't have much ownership in the platoon. So we're going to talk about um, your role and in, in, in your kind of perspective on, mm-hmm. um, it was called Operation Blowfish. Correct. Um, people, any listeners who have listened to The Spear for a while might remember how we had um, Colonel John Newman on, who was a battalion commander, I believe, at the time, um, who gave um, 
kind of a big picture, 30,000 foot view of all the moving pieces from here, but um, it'll be great to kind of complement that now mm-hmm. with, with the, the sort of um, platoon leader's perspective, the lieutenant's perspective on the ground. So uh, when was this? So this was in the beginning of June 2010. We were already in the process of prepping for our RIP. We'd actually just finished our last big battalion mission the week prior over Memorial Day weekend. It was a battalion-level air assault, which the MGS platoons and the scout platoons supported with support by fire. So that was that was in our understanding. That was like our last big operation. And then we start hearing the, the information that there is going to be this major potentially brigade-level operation RAO, and we already have soldiers that know they're leaving in the next four or five days. My platoon sergeant had already left to go back to begin kind of setting conditions for reintegrating soldiers in the back end, so I'm already down one of my my senior, my right-hand man. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it's definitely a battalion that has one— we have one eye, at least from my platoon's perspective, towards, sir, this deployment's done. We've— We've checked the block on Afghanistan. We're ready to go home. Mm-hmm. So that that was an interesting, it was a very rapid shift. For my platoon, we we were actually at, we'd been on a refit down at uh, Fob Frontenac, which was where our battalion headquarters was. Charlie Company, Crusher Company, was up at a cop at Shawali Cot. Mm-hmm. And we'd been back doing refit, and it actually just escorted a soldier um, down to CAF that was having that had made some threatening comments towards his own platoon chain of command. We dropped him off down at CAF, and then we immediately turned back around and headed back up to the cop to be told that, hey, cop, um, cop Shawali Cot had come under um, small arms contact and that we were told to move up with the MGS and bring our, mor- our company mortars that were also at Fob Frontenac up to where our company commander was. How far is that? It was a good 30, 45 minute drive on route there. Okay. And uh, your company commander was there at the cop. So he had actually, he had received small arm fire at the cop. And then as I think Colonel Newman talked about, we had a series of small OPs in the Baktu Valley that basically Mm -hmm. connected Frontenac. We had two patrol bases, cop Shawali Kot, and then we had two more patrol bases as well as a uh, artillery battery at um, Fob Tiger or a Tiger base. And those basically kept the route bear clear up until um, we could hand it over to another set of uh, battle space owners. And at that point, we had received contact both at our comp and then at those northern patrol bases. And so my commander had moved with the um, support with the platoon that was staged that was prepared for QRF missions up to those northern patrol bases. And I'd gotten the call to bring up my MGS and bring up the mortars to support him. Okay. Um, so that's what you do. You hop, hop in the vehicles and we quick, quick warno with the, the information that the XO is able to give us at Frontenac. And then we moved out first to the cop to see what was going on there. Um, it was pretty much deserted because we'd pulled most of our troops up to see what was going on in the Baktu Valley. I dropped off some soldiers that were supposed to stay with the first sergeant who was trying to basically reestablish base defenses and then continued moving north to the patrol bases. Okay. What, um, in your mind, what is, what is your mission as you're, as you're heading? Is it north? Going um, north. As you're heading north, 
um, given the type of equipment vehicles that you have, what, what is your role to play? So, so my role at this point, my understanding was that I was merely dropping off the mortar, the company mortars, the, each um, infantry company had two mortar striker vehicles with 120 mortars in them. Mm-hmm. So my understanding was I was going to deliver them to the company commander along with some extra ammunition, and then I was going to move back and be base security at the cop. Um, that, that changed once I got up there and talked to my company commander because he wanted, he wanted to keep the mobile gun system as his most powerful direct fire asset okay. at the position. Um, and as part of like a show of force, he had us fire 105 rounds at, at a hill just to kind of test out or show the capabilities of the vehicle. And then right after we fired our first round, the autoloader on the MGS um, broke. What is that? What's the autoloader? So for a, for a mobile gun system, unlike um, the Abrams tank, we have a three-person crew versus a four. And what replaces that fourth person is an autoloader. So in, in Abrams, you have a loader who is going to manually load the tank tank rounds into the uh, gun tube. Sure. For us, it's an autoloader that sits in between the gunner and the vehicle commander. And if that autoloader does not work, you effectively have turned the MGS into a artillery piece that you will, you have to step outside the vehicle to load. Okay. And once that happened, the decision was made to um, reload the MGS from the outside and just be prepared to fight it in that in that way in case we came into contact. Is that something you've trained to do at all, or is it no? <laughs> okay. So yeah, it was a it was something that my my gunner and my driver had. So they they felt confident and like, sir, we we know what to do with this. But it was something that looking back to how much armor OBC had kind of drilled into our heads, the focus on maintenance and having deadline parts, it was something I was not comfortable. And I voiced that to my commander, like, sir, I don't I don't think this vehicle should be out here if we're not yeah. capable of fighting it in, in the way it's supposed to. We still had a machine gun on it. We still had a, a 240 uh, coax. So those those were given as like, well, you still have these other weapon systems, use those. So that was the decision okay. that was made. Okay, so what happens next? So we stay at the patrol base. The, at that point, we're, we've been getting information that there's going to be this, that Operation Blowfish in some way, shape, or form is going to occur. So my company commander with the majority of the inf- infantry platoons withdraw back or mo- displace back to the cop, leaving my MGS with the infantry platoon that had been guarding that, that patrol base. Throughout the month prior to, so this would have been June 5th now, in the month prior to June 5th, all the platoons to include mine had basically spent anywhere from four to seven days at these patrol bases reinforcing them. And so we had, in some places, we had dug in positions, we ran sea wire, um, had sleeping areas. So relatively robust for what we're supposed to be kind of ready to pick up and go patrol bases. Sure. So that's where, that's where I stayed with my MGS. I had I normally rode on the infantry striker variant, but based on the last couple of missions, I'd made the decision to switch over to the to the MGS, and so that's why I ended up staying. So the the other three vehicles in my platoon left with the company commander, and I stayed up at the patrol base with the MGS. Um, I guess in direct support to another platoon later. Okay. Um, and then, 
I want to kind of just get the timeline right here. So Operation Blowfish was about to kick off then? Correct. And when? So it was, my understanding was it was going to kick off beginning on the 6th. Was so. that, um, was it moved up because of this activity at all? Or was it, or was that just a coincidence that there was enemy fire and that you had moved up and then that this operation was, was happening the next day? So from my perspective, I did not know what, I think in hindsight that it did, it did begin the pieces moving up quicker. Mm-hmm. I know eight Bravo Bear Troop Eight One Cav was not. They were already beginning to move up to us, and that was that was going to be the next measure. Was that once Bear Troop got to Frontenac, and then Colonel Newman was going to bring them up to our patrol bases to allow us to displace to be used as uh, com- uh, to allow the infantry platoons to be used for Operation Blowfish. Okay. Um, so. What happens next up at the patrol base? So up at the patrol base, we, um, so one, one other thing I do, I forgot to highlight in there is that during the day on the 5th, we were finally allowed to bring the mobile gun system back to Frontenac to get it looked at. There was no ability to, re- to repair the autoloader, and so the decision was made to bring it back up as a show of force weapon. So we've gone back up. We, <laughs> know, that our, we know that our vehicle does not, A, will not only, will not reload itself, and then second, all the uh, fire control systems in the vehicle had short-circuited. So we were going to be firing it, loading it manually, and then firing it degraded manually. Um, so those were just things that myself, my gunner, and my driver were working through and practicing when we got back up to the patrol base, expecting that we were not going to have to use it in a fight. Okay. But that evening, we... We see it's around five, six o'clock. We are all ready to go. We knew that the, the pattern was that during the day, the Taliban did not attack. That was, for lack of a better word, a time that both sides rested, repaired their equipment. Yep. And then around five, you would get ready because that was when or you were always set by four or five because that's when any sort of enemy contact would kick off in the same time at about four, four thirty in the morning. Um, so we're all we are ready with the expectation that we are going to be relieved in place by this cavalry troop. And as we see the battalion tack coming up through the Baktu Valley, we start seeing RPG rounds hit strikers. And at that point, we... How hop- far is that from you? It, it was 800 meters to a click okay. away. So you're, you have, I mean, line of sight. Line of sight. Visual. Visual of it. There's... I think there's there's a clip on YouTube somewhere that a soldier put up of kind of what of what was going on for it. But yeah, so it's that is going on and then we start scanning, we identify where what we believe to be a machine gun nest is, and we fire the MGS for the first time. And I told my guys before, hey, if we're gonna fire it once, we're not gonna do anything crazy getting out of the vehicle. We fire it once the engagement goes on and then we made the decision to get out and start loading it in the back we had one my driver would hand up the rounds to us and then we would load it into the back of the mobile gun system lock it in place with our m4 and then the dr- the gunner and i would go back around to the front he would he would move it on to the position and basically the the manual override that allows the the gun to fire if your fire control systems are down is on my side so then i would fire the what we call a master blaster in the armor wow. community. So, I mean, you're almost, 
it's almost like an artillery piece now, functionally. I mean, mm-hmm. it, you're using it in direct fire, correct, uh, or for direct fire purposes. But it's, but the mechanics of going through it is a lot more like artillery than yes. than what you're used to with a striker or or, or as a, a tank. tank. Yep. And and you know even add, you know the other layer that you would we were also at a certain point we were firing over our own troops to to engage targets on the far side of the road as they were displacing towards us. And, and that's something that any any person would would lose their mind on a on a range if that was of course if yeah. that was if that's what you're doing in training but as the situation dictated and I was making the decision that that was what we needed to do to provide the the fire support to get the strikers out of kind of the kill zone there how long did you fight the vehicle that way so we fought it we fired five rounds in total probably for about 10 minutes or so and then and then once that was done the dust cleared and the taliban had displaced and the fight was over did it feel quick it it felt a lot longer well so yes and no it's it, it felt quick at the time having gone back and finding that youtube video it looked like it took a lot of time between firing rounds, mm-hmm. which which makes sense if we're getting out of the vehicle, running to the back, loading around, then manually traversing the vehicle to make sure that you're on the right target, putting in the right data to ensure that the round's going to fire the proper distance, and then manually firing it. So how long does that process take? Uh, shoot. Um, my, my guess, we were taking two to, two to three minutes okay. for the whole thing and how long would it take if the if the vehicle is functioning properly eight eight seconds oh, ten wow. se- yeah we're and once once the once the taliban fighters like you said dispersed did that convoy then come to the patrol base so the convoy was actually going to the was actually moving under our fire and the fire of other people on the, of the okay. infantry on the patrol base into our location as we were firing wow so then going back to like firing over the heads of our own troops. Thankfully, we were up on high ground, but that was that was what was occurring. Well, you know, one of the things that um, one of the themes that kind of comes out in some of the conversations that we record for the spear is um, people come back and they say, you know, I rolled my eyes um, during all this training because I thought it was dumb, but then realized mm-hmm. that like I I functioned and functioned really really well because of all the training that I uh, that I had on this and muscle memory and. Um, but this is a little bit different because this is something that you hadn't trained to do to fight Mm -hmm. the vehicle that way. Um, did you feel ill prepared or, or did you feel like you should have been better prepared or was it, was it essentially good enough that you're sold? You had a couple soldiers that, that did know what they were doing, knew how to do this. So, so I would say that, uh, Chad Dutcher and Barry Oaks are, are heroes for, knowing and being willing and like trusting that I was doing the right thing on that day there, uh, Sergeant Dutcher was my gunner, uh, Specialist Oaks was the driver and they rose to the occasion on a, on a time where they were actually going to be the first two soldiers that were leaving from my platoon. And they rose to the occasion and were saying like, Hey, sir, we got this. We know how to have this. This is what we need you to do. And then let me, let me run with it from there. So I, I had some very stellar soldiers that just wanted, that wanted to make me succeed and also wanted to go out on the right note on the deployment. 
um, those guys who had been there for a year. Correct. Um, you had been there for four or five months. Just shoot eight. So at that point, like two and a half months. Oh, yeah. that's okay. Um, how do you think this, do you think this would have gone differently if you had been there, say for, you know, a couple of days and the soldier, you know, if there mm -hmm. wasn't that sort of, in your case, a few months, in their case, a year of experience that kind of, um, I don't know, it, it s stiffens your resolve a little bit. It, mm -hmm. it makes you feel a little bit more comfortable. There's, you know, the way you feel several months into a deployment is just very different. It's more competent. Mm -hmm. um, um, how do you think this might have gone differently if it was early in the deployment? So I think if we had had to go right into fighting the vehicle, basically if the autoloader had broke after that first shot and then we'd been forced to fight the vehicle degraded, Honestly, we might have not, we might have just stopped firing, at least until I figured out what, or we, we figured out what we could do. But because the vehicle had already become deadlined or degraded prior to the incident, we'd had that time to at least talk through and kind of shape what we were going to do. Now, granted, that, that initial shaping was we're going to shoot once and then we're not going to do anything crazy. That changed once the firefight occurred, but. Yeah, I, I do think that having having the muscle memory and having at least gotten to talk through the issue certainly made a difference for us. The other, the other, everybody else at the patrol base, it, it it's rifles, maybe some two forties, Mark nineteen. Yeah, so this is clearly the 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 biggest weapon system you have. Correct. Um, I mean, it's you know. Which raises the question whether or not this this engagement only lasted ten minutes, but would it would it have only lasted ten minutes if that system wasn't there? If you hadn't gotten off mm -hmm. five shots, um, because the Taliban might have stuck around and decided to weather the storm of some small arms fire and, mm -hmm. and stuff, but they didn't want anything to do with that 105. Um, so, I would imagine that the the guys that got hit with the RPGs that got ambushed in the first place were pretty grateful that even even if it was degraded that that your your vehicle was there and that you guys were willing to fight it i i think there was a lot of there was a lot of cheering uh i think colonel newman called it high adventure like in the moment in the moment like sure, that sure. that was that there was a lot of i think like positive excitement that a this was a weapon system that hadn't when the mgs had gotten used previously it'd been very effective but there'd been very few occasions that the mgs had gotten to really show itself well wow. um, well, Steve, thanks very much for uh, for sitting down and talking a little bit about this. Um, it's fascinating, honestly, to to hear about one one kind of little piece about of the of the bigger picture of the mm -hmm. operation that we heard from from Colonel Newman earlier. Um, and it's a it's an interesting story, and and I think there's lesson there to um, there's probably a lot of lessons there for uh, for listeners when it comes to having equipment that isn't in tip top shape, but mm -hmm. there's still a mission to be done. So, thank you very much. No, thank you very much, John. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.